This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you, uh, coming to you from uh, what is now my home studio. Uh, thanks to new technology and the work of Joey Burgoyne and Mike Olko and the guys at WTIC, uh, we now have a home studio for me to broadcast to you from. Um, it's going to take a little bit of a learning curve here, but we are able to take questions and I'll be able to answer those uh, in the second half of our program. Uh, since you want to be ready, let me give you phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Other ways to get in touch with me. A lot of people have been taking advantage of this and I appreciate it. Uh, and that is by going to info at alessimd.com. You can send me an email 24 hours a day and I'm happy to get back to you and possibly use your questions in today's program. The other way to get me is uh, through Facebook at Anthony G. Alessi MD. Well, it's certainly been an eventful week. More than 400 Americans died yesterday. The coronavirus has dominated the news and dominated our lives. The important thing, as I have been saying for weeks on this program, is to filter out the fake messages. And here's how you do it. You pay attention. When Dr. Anthony Fauci gets up and speaks, pay attention. Do not listen to the folks who have been giving you false messages, such as several weeks ago, we were told this virus has been contained. That was from a guy named Larry Kudlow. Okay. There are people out there telling you that it's a hoax. We're overreacting. These people are wrong. Listen to the science, follow the data. That's what's going to get us through this. So be careful about the fake messaging that's out there to lure you in the wrong direction. What we want is a clear plan. You know, for most of my life and most of yours, we look to others to see who did something right and who didn't do it right. And it's clear that there have been two approaches to dealing with this virus. There's the approach taken by Italy, Spain, and for lack of a better term, I guess it will, you would say it was shutting down the country light as opposed to South Korea, China, and now India and England. And they have gone to a strict national shutdown, what we call radical social distancing. It worked in those countries. Their curve has been knocked down. They're doing better. They're getting back to work. I don't know what the rocket science is here. I think the solution is clear is that we need to take a radical approach to what's going on. We need to learn from others and what has worked there. Some of the basic principles in dealing with this virus and any pandemic are three. Identification. 
let's find out who has the virus. Somebody had said, well, what are we going to do? Test 350 million people? Yeah, if we could, that'd be great. So we could know who has the virus. So testing. We're woefully behind in testing. We should have been out in front. This should have been started in January. I'm hopeful because we now have testing that's going to be approved that could be done in 15 minutes. That would be phenomenal. That's a great step forward. The next step after identification is isolation. Whoever has it and can spread it, you need to isolate them. Right now, we don't know who has the virus. We need to assume everybody has the virus, and that's why we need to advocate for radical social distancing until we know who has it and where they are. Which brings us to the third phase of dealing with the pandemic, contact tracing. Know exactly who has it and where they are. Okay, and you have to limit your travel because we're seeing this already. Okay, we know that New York has become the epicenter of this. So what's going on? People are traveling out of New York. They want to get the heck out of there. So they're coming where? They're coming to Connecticut. I've been hearing from my colleagues in East Lyme, many of the people who have summer homes are coming up, and you're welcome to come, but expect to spend two weeks in quarantine so that you do not introduce that virus somewhere else. I even hear Mexico wants to keep us out. Well, I guess the wall is going to come in handy from their standpoint. So we need to limit activity. Okay, contact tracing is going to be crucial to us moving forward. This virus is going to be with us, and it brings us to treatment. And we'll talk a little bit more about treatments throughout the program. But this virus is going to be with us. We know that because it has started to appear in the southern hemisphere. Therefore, it means that in countries where it's becoming winter, we're now seeing the virus. It will be back next season. The good news here is that this virus is very slow to mutate, meaning if we can develop a vaccine now, it will probably be just as effective for years to come. So that's in our favor. But we need to develop a vaccine. We have said this for years on this program, that vaccines are the greatest advance in modern medicine. No other advancement has been as big as vaccines. From dealing with smallpox in the 1700s to more recent vaccines such as those for papillomavirus and hepatitis B. Both of those infections can cause cancer. So when people tell you, why can't we have a cure for cancer? The cure is going to be in developing vaccines. Which brings me to the next point. We have a new term in medicine and in society called vaccine hesitancy. This has been very interesting to follow because it's hit the headlines with respect to measles, right? It's not possible to even argue that the measles virus is harmless, but yet we have groups of people whose opinions okay, are not based in any medicine or any science. 
these people have been led astray and they want to stop using vaccines. Our problem right now is that our elected officials here in Connecticut, so it boils down to us, that's what this program is about. What are we doing here in Connecticut? Well, our elected officials are now faced with a decision. They have a short season here, a short term in Connecticut, and they have legislation sitting on their desk that removes this fake religious exemption. There is no religion that says children should not be vaccinated. None. So again, misinformation is out there. The state of Connecticut needs to get rid of the exclusion for vaccines based on religion. They did that in New York and they stopped an epidemic of measles. We are now looking at a coronavirus and people are going to need to be vaccinated or we're going to see this peak again next year. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Ms. Ann Horbatuck. Uh, Ann Horbatuck is the uh, Vice President for Outpatient Services at the University of Connecticut and uh, she is clearly an authority into what's going on. She's the person a lot of people look to at UConn to find out how we're going to deal with the coronavirus on an outpatient basis. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest in this segment is Ann Horbatuck. Ms. Horbatuck is the Vice President of Ambulatory Operations at UConn Health. She is an RN, BSN, MBA. She's got a whole alphabet soup after her name. But uh, Ann Horbatuck was one of the first people I met at UConn uh, when I interviewed there and met about joining the Department of Orthopedics, and she held the administrative position there. I have learned that uh, Anne is one of the people that thinks out of the box. Uh, and in doing so, when we have these various uh, telephone calls and uh, conference calls, Anne is often the person that people look to because outpatient services and ambulatory services are so important. Anne, welcome. Thank you, Tony. It's great to have you. So can you explain uh, to our listeners when we, they hear ambulatory operations, what does that mean? Sure, sure. Um, ambulatory operations for, for what I do is all of our outpatient clinics. So Yukon Health has um, 10 off-site locations in multiple different areas within the state. And my job is really to work with my phenomenal team of directors, managers, um, coordinators and staff to actually um, do the day-to-day -day operations. So people coming into the clinics in Southington, East Hartford, West Hartford, Avon, Canton, along with the urgent cares. We have two urgent cares, one out in stores, one in Canton. And what my job is to make sure that um, we take care of our patients at all of these locations. Uh, and so obviously, uh, ambulatory operations are a big deal. So when we think of outpatient care, we think of clinics. What's the status of our clinics now at UConn in terms of what patients should be coming to clinics or not? 
Sure. So one of the most important things right now is to keep in mind that we're doing this as a team effort. So that's one thing that's really important. And when I say that, who can be better off at doing teams than UConn and um, coming together as one UConn? So when I'm talking about this, this starts from the governor to our president to our CEO, Dr. Aguinobi, our deans, um, and all the area hospitals, the unions, patients, employees. So from an ambulatory setting right now, what we're doing is a multi-level piece. We have a telephone screening that is actually done. So when people call, they're asked if they have traveled, if they have a new cough, a new new shortness of breath, feeling ill. We do not want people coming into the clinic. We are trying to keep people at home, staying separate, and really looking at social distancing. Now, If they need to come in, of course, they can come in, um, but we have them call their uh, primary care providers and actually work through our process. We also, if people are sick, very ill, we want them to call 911, of course. But what we've done is we've limited our appointments to essential appointments. So when patients actually do come in for their visit, what they are done is there is a process when you walk into any of our port of entry, they are screened. So patients are asked if they've traveled, do they have a fever, a recent cough, or recent shortness of breath. Their temperatures are then taken at that point to make sure that they are, do not have a fever. And that is done not only for our patients right now. The temperature checks are done for all employees, faculty, um, and, again, patients at all of our point of entry. So that's our first piece that we have put in place, along with a no-visitor policy. It's very difficult to not have visitors when you come in, but we're trying to limit the ability of um, exposure for not only our patients, but for the safety of our staff and our employees. So that's really our first um, mode of entry for our um, providers and patients. Uh, And you mentioned the temp. Uh, Is 100.4 the baseline you're using now, or has that changed? No, we actually go by the CDC guidelines, and right now that is the base that we are using. So greater than that, we do um, classify as someone having a fever, but again, we use the CDC guidelines for those specific. So I think people need to know that it is the temp of 100.4 is really the baseline that's being used based on the CDC. Absolutely. Uh, Telemedicine. Uh, This has ended up in your basket. Uh, Whenever I'm on these calls and there's a question about telemed and how that's working and how that's being developed, uh, everybody turns to you. Uh, Can you bring people up to speed on what telemed means as far as UConn Health is concerned? Sure. Again, this is a huge team effort. And we have a couple things. So one of the things that we do have is what's called e-visits. And they're for our high-specific high areas. So um, our geriatric population, our internal medicine population, OBGYN. And e-visits are through MyChart. It's our patient portal for our Yukon Health patients. And with these e-visits, our providers can check your symptoms. You can um, get a brief assessment, talk to the nurse or the MD. And um, they can order medications, lab work, and if necessary, they can schedule an office visit for patients that they feel need to come into the um, into UConn Health. So it's important that our patients, A, sign up for, uh, for MyChart, my which is mychart.uconn.edu backslash MyChart. That way they have that direct connection. 
The second piece that we have is what's called telephone encounters. And we've been working with our IT department very closely with this. And they have done a phenomenal job at bringing this up. And what this is, is patients with appointments, we can speak to them directly over the phone and um, actually do a patient appointment um, with additional work. Um, we're bringing up what's called video visits in the next week or two. And that's actually where you'll be able to see someone online to be able to talk to them. But telephone encounters are live now, and it is an alternative for patients. Instead of coming into the institution, they can stay at home, talk to their physician or nurse practitioner or PA, and be able to actually have a um, patient care visit on the phone. The MyChart contact is not a video then? No, MyChart is actually a um, communication that's through the internet. So they actually talk to their patient almost okay. like an um, email type communication. Then what happens okay. is it's triaged by the nurses that are in those specific areas, and then the provider actually gets this message when it has to be arced up. Providers and nurses call the patients back at times if they don't want to just go through the MyChart to get more specific detailed assessment for these patients. Ann, I have to ask you the $64,000 question, and that is, let's talk about preparing for a surge. Uh, what's going on at UConn in order to prepare for a surge uh, if and when it hits? Well, that is a very um, important uh, question right now. So it starts actually, Tony, at the beginning, which is really patients calling a call center, and I can give you more information on that, a sampling sure. site, which is a second phase that I'll give more information on in a moment, and then it comes to the surge plan. So the surge plan is being worked on at all levels, um, not only at UConn Health um, by Dr. Aguinobi and, and our team, but also at a state level. This is a huge endeavor, not only with the Connecticut Hospital Association, but again, like I said, at the state level. So for UConn Health, we're looking at things from volumes that patients come into the emergency room um, to the need for ICU beds, um, the number of ventilators we have, switching patient care floors right now um, over to specialized units that can accommodate um, high levels of intensive um, in ICU type level patients or other levels. Um, and it also involves staffing. So this looks at who are um, providers, who are nurses, um, ancillary staff that are in other areas that can be, um, has a background or an expertise as a hospitalist or has a background um, in ICU or can be moved as a staff person that has been working in an ambulatory yeah. setting for about a year or so and how can we reorient them back to the hospital. So that's all part of this massive surge um, plan um, operation. It is a and team of... Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, it, it, it's, it's great to hear uh, and reassuring to know that, you know, UConn has this plan in place and that we're getting ready to move forward with it uh, when and if we have to. Uh, and I, I want to take, since we're running up against the hard break, I want to take time to thank you. Um, thank you for your leadership and uh, thank you and everyone at UConn uh, for what they're doing uh, to help us all.
you back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this half hour, we're going to be taking your questions. Um, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com or on Facebook at Anthony G. Alessi, MD. Uh, we have uh, Jim on the line from West Hartford. Jim, you had a question about vaccinations. Hi, Dr. Alessi. Uh, thanks very much for sharing your earlier views on the religious exemption loophole in Connecticut law that allows parents right now to decline basic vaccinations for their kids. Your, your listeners may be interested to know uh, that right now 134 of our Connecticut schools do not currently meet the 95% vaccination participation rate that's considered safe by our Department of Health. Um, your listeners can also learn more about this issue if they visit the website of the Vaccination Alliance of Connecticut, which is vaccinatect.org. They can also find there on that website a way to reach out to their local legislator to, um, you know, take this issue forward with Bill HB 5044 this year. And if they don't pass this legislation this year to end those exemptions, our kids are going to be condemned to another full academic year of living with other kids who have not been vaccinated. And this is a vaccination that goes back, you know, generations. It's, it's a vaccination against things like polio, measles, mumps, lupus. It, it, and it's just unthinkable that some parents would deny their kids this vaccination. And it's unconscionable, in my view, that some legislators would sit back and let this continue to prevail, especially in the light of this corona, coronavirus issue, where we're seeing now a worldwide rush to create a vaccine. And we've got parents right here in Connecticut denying vaccines to their kids. Jim, where do we stand on this? Do you have any idea in terms of uh, legislators? I mean, is it, uh, is it a close vote or, uh, you know, are there know. very we, many we people do. against it? We, we do know that it came out of committee this year, which is important. That means the legislators now can vote on it. But with the current disruption of the legislative session, you know, they're not meeting now at the LOB. We just don't really know the status of this. Everything's very unclear. Um, on, on when this issue might be taken up, how it might be taken up. And the fear of those of us who oppose this exemption is that the season may slip by and then next, December, this, I'm sorry, next September starts, we've got another full academic year where nothing will happen once again. So that's the worry. Well, Jim, listen, thank you. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on that information. And um, I'm going to ask people to get in touch with your elected official. Uh, you know, it's time for them to stand tall and stand for the people of Connecticut. Uh, Jim, thank you for your call. Uh, some of the statistics, uh, just bringing everybody up to speed. Globally, as of today, we have 614,000 people who have been infected, 28,000 people dead, 137,000 recovered. In the United States, 104,671 people are positive for the virus. And and we haven't done nearly enough testing yet. 1,711 deaths. So that's a lot of people, 400 dead just yesterday in the last 24 hours. But in Connecticut, we have 1,291 deaths, or rather 1,291 positives, 27 deaths. It's also important to note that it's the people on the front lines that are falling down on this, okay? We hear about the elderly, but 51 physicians have died so far from the coronavirus. Um, with that, Pete, you had a question about some of the deaths per day 
from the coronavirus? Yeah, you had, um, I think you have 400 uh, a day, and um, and that sounds like a big number, but... Yesterday, yeah. Yesterday, yeah. But yesterday also, in, in total, the United States, 8,000 people died, uh, just just of normal cause. That's what happens every day. I think sometimes yeah. we, throw, we throw out the number, we get a little bit excited. And, and also, I think that, you know, the, the, num- the total number of deaths of the coronavirus worldwide to date is less than 10% of the flu deaths for the same time yeah. period and, and i think and i know it's apples and oranges a little bit but i think that um some you know from my perspective what's happening we're reacting to this thing and completely wrecking our economy and have has anyone really taken a look at all the deaths on the bad side meaning how many people are going to die of suicides of domestic violence of all the things that you know losing your job and yeah uh, there, there was someone the other day that reported uh, domestic violence was had increased over 30 percent in the time period since we've had this uh this uh, quarantining of people um you know so i think there's some adverse effects and i and i think one of the things you're, you're talking about is the cdc we got our information and and we we have to you know trust some of the sources that we get it from but sometimes it comes down to value judgments that are not medical they're really just you know, people deciding what's the best thing for our society. We don't need an MD for that. Um, we ha- and, and I think we've overdone this. Um, you know, I think we're really uh, wrecking our economy, which is going to be wrecked yeah. for many, many years. Um, so I don't know if we have yeah. a solution to that or it's a compromised position. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, basically, Pete, you're wrong. And let me tell you why. People have used this misinformation about, we've heard about car accidents. We've heard about the flu. Okay, uh, we're hearing about suicide, but guess what? We've had these huge numbers of people dying from the flu. They didn't all come to the emergency room at the same time. That's the problem with the coronavirus. It's happening all at one time. We didn't take any precautions. We didn't get out in front of this. So the problem is it has now overwhelmed our health system. We have more people in other countries, okay? And it's starting in New York. All these people are getting sick at the same time and severely sick, and we don't have the personnel or the equipment. So these numbers, when somebody tells me, well, what about the flu? What about car accidents? I immediately realize that they're misinformed. Okay, the next step is you brought up the economy. And so now you're telling me we should make a choice between economics and public health okay so do we make a quotes value judgment between economics and public health public health always wins human life always wins we live in a very rich country believe it or not this is a very wealthy country we have a robust economy and we have money so to make it simple we have the money to survive this We have the money to give to small businesses and give to people to get back up on their feet. What we don't have is the ability to keep them alive right now. And that's the real problem. The problem is keeping people alive. So in life, there are problems that money will solve and there are problems that money won't solve. Money won't solve the death issue. Money will solve the economic issue. So with that, I think it's an interesting point you make, and 
Sure. And I know you're you're an orthopedic and not an epidemiologist, but I know you have medical background, and I think you. Well, actually, I, I, well, I yeah. Go ahead. I have a master's degree in medical management. Okay, that includes sure. it. I, so I, I, I don't go right ahead. I think I think you're in the ballpark there, but you're not an economist. I, I don't. I think you're you're going over I, the line. There's, the there's no question. There's no question about being an economist. There's the, there's no question. I don't think, I don't think you it's not an economic question. That this isn't going to isn't going to completely wreck our economy, and everything is economics. We always make value judgments. You just you decide. Do you treat patients that don't have insurance? I guess you do. Maybe some of them, but most times. Ah, wait a second. Whoa. Let me stop. All right, Pete. Let me stop you right there. I take care of everyone, whether they have insurance, no insurance, or once knew somebody who once had insurance. So, well, let me stop you right there. Okay. Okay. Now, as far as economics, I'm going to tell you, globally, if you compare economics and health, health always wins. That's the way it works, okay? Well, I, mean, I don't that, think that's That's pretty simple. If it, was, if it was affecting one person, we would not shut the economy down. It's always a numbers game. It always has to reach a critical mass. So what's your price? So let me ask you, Pete, before we go to a break right now, what's your price on a human life? Give me a price. Give me a number, because that's what you're telling me. It's economics. Well, human lives aren't for sale. You you have a family. Which which member of your family are you putting out there? Because guess what? These people, okay, you want to open up the economy, I'm hearing, all right? So you're going to put my life as a healthcare worker on the front line in jeopardy, okay? You've heard the slogan, right? I stay at work to keep you healthy so you should stay at home to keep me healthy. That's basically what we've come down to here. The economics will work out. But I resent the idea that there are politicians out there willing to lighten up, okay, let's, let's people start getting back to life, okay, while myself and my children are in hospitals treating people. So I appreciate your opinion. You brought up some good points, and I'm glad you opened that one up. With that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back for the finale of our program. You can call in 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds. We're back on Healthy Rounds in the final segment of our program. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. 9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com. Somebody called in and asked if elective surgeries were being canceled uh, throughout Hartford. And the answer is uh, yes to some degree. You should always check with your physician. Uh, but most elective surgeries um, have been canceled uh, throughout uh, Connecticut and New York. Uh, I had uh, a cousin of mine who was supposed to have a shoulder replacement done this week. They canceled that in New York City. So uh, we're going to be holding off on elective surgeries for several reasons. One, uh, not to bring people into the hospital and subject them to infection. Two, to preserve the PPE, the protective equipment um, that uh, the various healthcare workers uh, will be needing. Um, we have a uh, question on the line. Mike, do you have a question for us? Okay, I think I uh, missed that. But anyhow, um, we will catch up with questions as uh, people call in. Some of the questions I've had during the week, uh, one of them was the loss of taste and smell. 
is a loss of taste and smell a symptom of the coronavirus? And the answer is yes. Uh, from the standpoint that a loss of taste and smell is a very general symptom that you see with a lot of upper respiratory infections. I think we've all had it to some degree having had an upper respiratory infection that you may temporarily lose your sense of taste and smell. So people who have experienced this early on as an early symptom, it can be considered a loss of taste and smell. So as a, an early symptom. The other question that's been coming up is the use of Motrin. Uh, people have backed off on using Motrin uh, because some people have said on the internet that it lowers your immune response. And by I mean that all of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, whether it be Advil, Aleve, that's not true. Uh, those medications are not steroids. They do not do it. They do not affect your immune response. So people who are taking it for arthritis can continue taking it. It is also an excellent medication when we are trying to treat fever. So uh, don't back off on using that uh, for fear that it will lower your immune response. Uh, we have Chris on the line from West Hartford. Chris, you have a question. Hi, hi Dr. Olesi. Uh, yeah, I just would like to ask uh, what your opinion of maybe using hydroxychloroquine uh, on patients, you know, before they need to be intubated. Uh, I've heard from some doctors that who said that uh, it's 100% success rate, uh, all recoveries, zero deaths. Why shouldn't we be doing this all over the place? Well, for a couple of reasons. Whoever told you that isn't telling you the truth um, okay. from the standpoint that we don't know that answer. Now, I use chloroquine when I go to Haiti because it it is an anti-malarial drug. So yes. you have to take six pills. You take it once a week for six weeks. I have to also tell you that it's an expensive drug. So people telling you it's a common and it's a cheap drug. I had to buy three pills at, at my local pharmacy from my last trip to Haiti. It cost $22 for three pills. So it's not that cheap. It also is not that effective in all forms of malaria. So malaria that you get from Africa, it doesn't work. Okay. So the, the information we have is anecdotal. Believe me, I hope it works. But we don't have any information that it's 100% effective. What we have is anecdotal evidence. People kind of telling stories where they've seen one person get better. So Dr. Fauci and others have said, let's do a study. And that's what we're doing. So in New York, so when you do a study, often it takes a long time because you don't have a lot of patients. You know, you have to have patients with the problem to do the study. So here's what's going on in New York. And we should have the answers very soon for you, Chris. Good. The question being, we're giving some people hydroxychloroquine and some people are getting placebo. They volunteer for this. It's kind of an easy thing to volunteer from because at least you have 50% chance of getting the medication. Otherwise, you don't. Right. So with that, since we have such big numbers of people with COVID-19, we're going to have an answer very quickly as to is it effective? Is it harmful? Because it is not that benign. So is it effective? Is it harmful? And who is it most effective in? It may be a way of, present, of preventing COVID-19. We don't know that yet. 
Yeah. What I do know is people are doing the wrong thing going out there and buying it. Physicians writing prescriptions for themselves or their family for chloroquine are doing the wrong thing. And thankfully, pharmacists have refused to fill those prescriptions because we don't have an answer yet. We'll have one soon for you, Chris, but we're going to have good science to move forward with. So I, I thank you for that question. That's a great question. Uh, we have Susan on the line from Avon. You had a question. Uh, yes, Dr. Leslie, thank you for taking the call. But you might have already discussed this. Um, I was telling uh, the fellow who answered that I had gotten a long email this morning stating again that the use of ibuprofen and Advil, um, the patient, people who have taken it and then end up in the hospital with the virus do very, very poorly. Is that true or is that still just a myth? That's a myth. Okay. That's, that's not been proven. So that's, that's not been the case at all. So. Okay. You could still take Advil and Aleve. It's not going to be a problem and very effective. Thank you for the question. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. So uh, with that, we're getting ready to close. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been asking me questions about long-term effects that we don't know about uh, and hand washing. You just have to wash your hands as much as you can. Uh, use sanitizer before you, you, when you go to pump gas or use a piece of equipment. Use the sanitizer both before so you don't spread germs to that piece of equipment and after, so you don't bring those germs home. Keep your hands away from your face. In conclusion today, we're working on a lot of different treatments. Um, the uh, idea of using convalescent serum quickly, so people who have had the virus wait 21 days, we take their serum and use it to treat others. We're using ventilators for two people. Things are make we're making progress here. One of the things I often think of is the serenity prayer. God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the, the ones I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We can change this. We Americans can band together and change this. So I ask you all now, be courageous and stay home. This has been Dr. Anthony Alessi on Healthy Rounds for WTIC News Talk 1080. Until next time. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.